0: I grew up in Dorval, and my world, like most, revolved around my friends. The summer we hung out at the park, the winter the arena, when a parent was generous and let us hang out in their basement. As we grew older and became more mobile, we'd go away for the weekend and camp. Life was simple, and I was confident about my position within my circle. Well, all of that changed when I went off to university. Memory serves me correct, I was the only one in my gang that did that year. I chose Carleton University in Ottawa, and I lived in residence. Glengarry was the name of the building, and I was on the sixth floor. It's one of the most important decisions that I made because it made me grow up, have a better understanding of who I was. I didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a family car to get me to school, but so I went there by bus. I missed Freshie Week, and when I arrived, I was lost in so many friends. I didn't know anyone. The layout of the school was confusing. And when I attended class, I felt like an imposter. What was I doing studying and contributing alongside all these smart people? The professors would soon see me as a fraud. What changed was two courses. Psychology 101, where we read books like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Flowers for Algernon. And English Literature, where we studied Utopia and Dystopia, and read things like Walden's Pond and Shangri-La and Lord of the Flies. Debbie Patch, a crush of mine, who I wrote many letters to that year, still has one where I wrote, I would love to option One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and make it in a movie. Well, Michael Douglas beat me to it. And the following year, Jack Nicholson delivered one of his finest performances, but I regress. Today's episode is about imposter syndrome. We all have it, and many fight every day to overcome it. My guest is someone you probably haven't heard of unless you're in the technology field. She's a top 40 under 40, worked for corporation startups, has created her own startup fund, and today is passionate about lifelong learning. And she too has overcome imposter syndrome. Her name is Candace Factor.
1: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: I get to chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance. In doing so, we uncover life lessons that inspire us to do more and to be more to help us get to where we need, want, and deserve to go. And joining me today is Candace Factor, a serial entrepreneur and a role model for making things happen. Candace, welcome.
2: Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here.
0: So Candice, you do a lot of public speaking. I always ask speakers, what's the best way someone has ever introduced you in terms of not just what you do, but the value you bring an audience?
2: I would have to say part reflective, part, inspirational, and part human.
0: Candice, I'm going to get into your life story. One of the chords is how you've overcome your imposter syndrome. But first, actually, I'm going to do something very different. I'm going to talk about what you're doing today. You're the co-founder of Disco, and you believe the future is learning life together.
2: Absolutely. So at Disco, we are really passionate about two things. One, reimagining the future of learning. And yes, you said it very well, which is, We believe that the future of learning is live and together. This was born out of COVID, really. We were all forced to learn and and stay at home and to learn virtually. And what we recognized is that the way people had learned before online, which was the mainstay of digital learning, was pre-recorded courses. And the single biggest problem with pre-recorded courses is that you aren't learning together, you're learning alone. And the science of learning is such that we learn better together. Before COVID really, we had to do that in person together. And that's great at times, but it's also very costly and not very efficient. And it didn't allow you to take a course from somebody who was exceptional in Japan if you were sitting in Toronto. And so we are a platform that allows creators and thought leaders like yourself to run live learning experiences where groups of people are able to take a course together and provide feedback, support, and accountability in a cohort.
0: So I love the insight of learning live together. Do you think that that platform you're creating can move beyond that thought leader in Japan and in fact, reinvent education?
2: innovation doesn't start in the mainstream. And so the way we are approaching learning is we're really at the edge. We're really focusing on lifelong learning experiences as opposed to institutional education. But if we fast forward five to 10 years, we have a belief that institutional education will be reimagined because there will be so many more creator-led, community-driven live learning experiences that people won't be forced into a mass institutional education in order to acquire the skills they have. And we're already starting to see that in higher ed today.
0: So do you think universities that have had this lock on this passport, this degree that says, if you get a degree at my university, it will take you through life, do you think they're going to lose their hold on that? Because it'll be less about... Getting a degree in Harvard and more about getting courses from these 10 thought leaders?
2: Yes, and no. I think what we're going to see is a polarization of the most prestigious universities will become even more powerful, their brand will matter. The middle Market universities—they're already facing tremendous challenges on proving their value and their worth relative to the costs that um, they're charging their their learners. So, if you look at you know student debt ratios, they're through the roof. If you look at the cost of it, uh, tuition, it's gone through the roof. And if you look at the number of people who are going through mid-market universities who are not equipped for the future, whose their curriculums have not been you know reimagined for what the 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 future skills are going to be, you kind of get a sense that that wave of the middle of the road university is going to have a really hard time competing with very specialized creator-led learning programs that actually give you the transformation of learning that you're looking for.
0: So the pushback to me is that these top-tier universities might be the equivalent of Sony Music or Apple Records, and they feel they have control of the musician. But as these musicians start building their own sphere of influence through platforms like Disco, isn't it fair to say their brand might be greater than the university and therefore even the top tiered universities might struggle to hold on to their their value.
2: You know, I think what you're mentioning is really great because if you look to the music industry or if you look to the newspaper industry, you know, my background was in corporate innovation in media and I watched, right, the the destruction of these mass medium channels really get get left behind, especially the, the regional newspapers who didn't have a brand and instead creators became their own brands. Journalists became their own brand. Look to the information as an example, a a creator-led news brand. A very, very interesting company that sort of uh, is an inspiration for us at Disco is what Shopify did for the e-commerce industry. So e-commerce, you know, once was very much big mass market shopping brands and with a platform like Shopify enabled small creative people to create direct to consumer brands. And I see that's what we're doing at Disco is helping those instructors. We call them the rogue professors who have amazing things to teach, who have influence and um, IP we're giving them a platform to create their own schools, their own lear- live learning experiences.
0: I understand people that have an incredible appetite for content and learning. What you're offering is with putting the best minds and the best teachers within our reach of desire. I get that. What about the misfits, the people that don't have the confidence or the courage? They need that mentor or that Sherpa to help them.
2: We've grown up in institutional education where it's one size fits all. And I think what we are enabling are micro passion driven experiences that allow people far more choice as to who they're going to learn from and how they're going to learn best by offering the diversity of creators a chance to actually create meaningful, transformative learning experiences. And a great example of that is Erica M. I'm sure you're familiar with Erica M. Uh, she just launched a boot camp for the Tony Chapmans, for the misfits of, you know, high schoolers who don't actually fit into an institutional uh, system. She called it Academy, a five-day transformative bootcamp for young people of all ages to pursue their purpose and their passion using Disco as their platform of choice. Um, so first off, happy holidays to everyone. Uh, what a year it has been. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Game Changer Sessions is a series we created right when the pandemic hit, uh, to really focus on two things. One, how, how do we really survive, not just survive, but actually thrive in this time of chaos and uncertainty and change? And how do we create the future we want?
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My special guest is Candace Factor, who is a serial entrepreneur. She's had to overcome circumstances and her own insecurities become a force of change and lifelong learning. Candace, I watched a video where you're talking about growing up in South Africa and a life of privilege. Take us back to those days when it seemed like the world was your oyster.
2: South Africa uh, is a really complex place. It is a complex place because there was so much polarity in, in South Africa. There was so many challenges and so much unfairness, um, and also so much aliveness and so much beauty in the, in just being in Africa. And, you know, my, my childhood was, was wonderful in many ways. It was, uh, going on safaris and being by the beach and, you know, having, uh, my parents were entrepreneurs and we're always up for adventures.
0: So my wife is also South African. She describes her time in Canada by how many winters she's been here. 33 winters. <laughs> she said she came here to Canada on a holiday and couldn't believe that she could ride the subway at midnight and not be scared. And she no longer had to carry a gun in her purse. 14 a tough age to move. What did you do to try to fit in, leaving the safaris and the world of privilege, coming to Canada? And I think from what I understand, your parents had to basically give up all they owned to get here.
2: To fit in was really hard at 14. You know, I should have a full South African accent most people who move somewhere at 14 have a full south african accent you can barely hear the fact that i'm south african except as my husband says when i'm mad or sad it comes right out so um so what did i do to fit in i i tried to speak like other people i became um it was hard it, it was a really hard time i was quite insecure it was it was not an easy transition. My world got turned upside down in a matter of eight weeks uh, when my father made a decision that all of this privilege is not worth the cost of not living with freedom. It is most definitely the, the most transformative experience of my life, having to leave everything behind and start again. And it's the, the thing I'm most grateful for.
0: When you move, you must have been so angry at your parents, but I watched a video One of your talks where you broke down crying, thanking them for giving you this opportunity.
2: I had a very loving and close relationship with my family. And I I really attribute this to my parents, which is they really allowed me to be reflective with them on what we were gaining. And, you know, I understood at a very young age that money was just a material thing and that love was really what um, love and freedom were, were sort of the currencies of. What a good life was about. And that's really rare. You know, it, my my siblings were younger, and I don't think they they had the same experience. And on the one hand, I was incredibly grateful to to, to be older and to understand how much difficulty my parents were going through. And, and by being so close to it, I, I couldn't be angry with them because they were trying their best. And we we're all trying our best. I think later in life, you know, that I, I was a bit more angry for a while and then as we all go through, we all go through our journeys. Uh, you know, life was just, in, it was intense and it was hard. And I was surrounded by people who hadn't had to worry about some of the things we had to worry about.
0: You're 2000, you graduate, you're the top of your class, one of the top schools, Richard Ivey School of Business. You go into management consulting. And if people listening aren't aware, that's one of the toughest grinds. I mean, they work these young kids to near impossible conditions. What did you do to survive and thrive in that environment?
2: I loved it. I was—I mean, when I was younger, I was super motivated. I mean, that you talk about this—this this idea of immigrant hustle, right? I'm sure you've heard that, and it, it really was like I made the decision, having lived a life of privilege and then leaving it behind. I just. Was determined to be successful when I was younger. And this was a really amazing opportunity for me. You know, I I remember I had to take out $60,000 of OSAP loans um, to, to sort of afford this business school. And I was determined to pay that back in my first year. And I did. And it was the most incredible feeling. Uh, to work that hard, but to be compensated in a way that allowed me to be debt free after my first year of universe, uh, after my first year of working. And so I had a tremendous amount of pride and um, ambition to do really well and to make sure that I was successful. Um, and i I was so. I was, I felt so grateful that I got to work in this job that felt like going to school because, you know, it was very much about learning new ways of thinking and, you know, new problem-solving techniques. And, you know, in those days, I just had so much boundless energy and, and enthusiasm for what I was doing and, and felt really grateful. Today, I don't think I would cut it.
0: <laughs> in 2006, you make an interesting pivot. You go to Torstar digital. And on paper, this looks like a natural. Take the cash and the legacy business of print, funnel it into this new world of digital. You crush this job. You've got 25 plus businesses. Things are going really well. But you describe hitting a wall called don't mess with status quo.
2: Torrester was a client. from Monker the consulting firm and I it was a wonderful opportunity and I you know sometimes it's better not to know what you're up against like there was a naivete that I had that was so helpful back in those days because I truly believed it didn't matter if you were a legacy business or not innovation could could happen i think what's really hard for legacy businesses is is status quo, right? It's really hard to disrupt yourself, you know, to eat your own arm, right? When it's still seemingly healthy. And so, you know, while we did create a lot of innovation at the end of the day, uh, there was a lot to lose. And, you know, I, I found it really hard to, um, disrupt something that still existed, but wasn't going to exist much longer. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, people have vested interests in maintaining the status quo. And so unless you are going to realign incentives and make things uncomfortable for the existing businesses to continue to maintain status quo, it's really hard to truly disrupt uh, the existing nature of a business.
0: That's why the Teslas and the Netflix and the Amazons. But I'm, I'm curious from your point of view with individuals, because legacy businesses know the wave of change is happening and really don't jump on it, often get crushed by it. I would argue the same thing happens with individuals. You know, We hear that half the jobs that exist today will no longer be there in five years. There'll be new jobs and you're going to need to have this appetite for lifelong learning. But so many people just kind of hold on to where they are. What advice can you give to individuals out there that says, embrace the change and ride the wave to the future versus just standing there and hoping that you survive when it hits?
2: Big part of my journey, because I was so passionate about innovation, I I wanted to sort of bring that into the personal realm and into personal transformation. And in many ways, that is what um, my series Game Changer is all about, is how do you take the themes and principles from startups and from innovation and apply it to yourself. It's actually riskier to not change. A lot of people assume that taking risks and trying new things and experimenting and sort of what I call unlearning a lot of what you know traditional um, models have taught you, they think it's safer to stay in the status quo. And my argument is it's actually not as safe, because the longer you stay in the same way, the harder it is to change. And, you know, in terms of, you know, figuring out how you go from status quo to change, it's actually just one small step at a time, tiny micro habits of taking small risks of trying new things, of experimenting, of learning. It's small micro habits that lead to massive changes. Whether it's for a complacent person or for the greatest entrepreneur, nothing happens without tiny, small steps.
0: Hi, this is Tony Chapman. Chatter That Matters is presented by RBC. When we come back, Candice Factor joins a startup called Wattpad Was part of the team to turn the storytelling platform into a fairy tale for their investors. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million, decade long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC.
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Today, I have the honor of chatting with Candice Factor, an extraordinary entrepreneur, top 40 under 40. Candice, you go from consulting to running a big business to joining a startup called Wattpad. Why did you make that move? Because I have to believe that move came with more uncertainty and a lot less guarantees in terms of cash flow.
2: I was always a fan of innovation. I loved the idea of creating the future we want and creating new things. And, you know, I was, I was at Torstar and I was doing that in many ways, but in the safety of corporate life. And what I realized is that I was no longer learning as much as I wanted to be learning. And so I jumped right in. I mean, to your point, it was a massive pay cut. It was a a third of my compensation that I was making in a big corporate innovation arm. I joined as employee 10. And I did it because I wanted to be surrounded by the smartest people I thought were in this ecosystem. And I wanted to learn um, what it's truly like to have no corporate safety net. And ultimately, this notion of alignment, I felt that I really wanted to work in an environment where everybody wanted the disruption to happen, our investors, the entrepreneurs, and the team, as opposed to in the media company I was at, where only a small group of us wanted to create change, and other people were hoping status quo would happen.
0: So, Candice, you're at Wattpad. This business is scaling beyond belief. You know that every day you're getting closer to the biggest paycheck in your life, but you leave. You leave in the middle of all this and you decide to create your own business called Game Changer. What was the motivation to turn your back on what so many people in the technology front hope for is to be that close?
2: Wattpad was an absolute rocket ship. It was truly transformative and global. And, you know, I was there for four years and it was the most transformational work experience of my life and at the same time you know you asked me (laughs) how did I handle the grind uh, when I was I guess in my early 20s I, I handled it swimmingly I think by the time I was in my late 30s with two small children and two beautiful boys I was really exhausted and I realized that there's more to life than just working it was time to actually focus on on a more inward pursuit of finding my, my purpose and my passion as opposed to achieving and pleasing and, and sort of being outwardly focused in terms of the goals I had in my career. So it was a very hard decision, but it was the best decision I ever made in my entire life.
0: It sounds like a lot of your parents were talking through you at that point, because you know, when you think about what they did and the changes they made and said, materialistic is not enough. I need to find love and happiness. It sounds like a lot of those lessons in life were radiating through you at the same time.
2: I have never put that together. And I'm so grateful for you actually reflecting that back to me, because I think that is true, is that everybody has their own definition of success you know my version of success is is multifaceted it's it's in your career but it's in your life it's in your family it's in sort of finding your, what your purpose and your passion ultimately is. And, and that's really what I used that time period in my life to do. And you know, it was a wonderful time where I started my own innovation advisory firm and, and coaching business, and uh, that, that was game changer. And uh, was really interested in helping the next set of Wattpads become successful and started a micro fund. We made 14 investments in sort of really transformative of technologies. And it's where I kindled the passion for teaching. And you know, Wattpad was wild. It was, it was like I was living in the future.
0: I was fascinated to see how much you invested in creating this community of innovators. And you you kept them together, interesting enough, by content. You brought some of the top thinkers. It's a big investment. I mean, we all start off on these projects doing them once or twice, but you really decided that was incredible value to help people get to where they want to go, was to bring them this kind of thinking and this kind of community.
2: The Game Changer community really came together during COVID. It was out of complete purpose of recognizing that there's all this change in the world. COVID is happening, and most people don't know how to wrap their head around around it. And the one thing that I'm very passionate about is helping people thrive in uncertainty and create the future that they want. And I felt very privileged to have met so many amazing people in my journey as an entrepreneur and with Wattpad. And I felt the best way I can contribute in this time of crisis is not actually financially necessarily or not on the front lines. Like I'm not a frontline worker, but what I am really passionate about is mindset, And actually helping people rethink how they need to think about this time of crisis. And so that's how that community came to be. And it was so joyful. I'm sure you find this, you know, with your podcast is small stories of inspiration and sharing the perspective of really different points of view and different thinkers can be life-changing for many people.
0: Candice, my belief is that attention is the oxygen of almost all human endeavor. A teacher can't teach without the attention of students. The same holds true for coaches and players, politicians, leaders, uh, people that have ideas, people who want to see their resume be absorbed. We need the attention of the people that matter most to us. What advice, given that you've been in the business of creating content your entire life and creating communities based on learning, what advice can you bring the audience and how do they get the attention they deserve?
2: We are living in the attention economy. You know, our scarcest resource of our time is attention. When I started to like deeply understand that, I realized how manipulated our attention really is. You know, there's there's two parts of this question. One is how do you control your own attention and how do you direct your own attention uh, to the things that are actually going to serve you Uh, And that's both as, you know, a learner and just a a human being in our society. We are, our phones are incredibly addictive. The options for content and our attention are, are bigger than, you know, ever before and more manipulative. And so therefore, as a creator, you have to be super aware of what you're up against. And I think the best way to create the attention you deserve is to come at it from a place of purpose and passion. In order to have a meaningful conversation or to have meaningful relationships with the community, you need to bring your your whole self to that community. You know, one thing I learned at Wattpad is sometimes the more raw and vulnerable you are about what you do know and what you don't know is actually what is most compelling in terms of a listening experience versus something that's overly polished and perfect.
0: You talk about nuggets of wisdom, the idea of transcendent. Tell the audience why this word matters so much to you.
2: I didn't come up with this word. You know, there's, this, there's some really great thinkers on the notion of transcendence. Uh, one of them is Michael Singer, uh, who writes a book called The Untethered Soul and the Surrender Experiment. The ideas in transcendence is that you can rise above your emotions and as somebody who you know has always been a particularly emotional person i was so taken aback that i could separate myself from my emotions and when i started putting in practice a, a mindfulness practice that really showed me that that was possible my entire life changed because i no longer defined myself in some of the emotional reactions I had to circumstances and people and situations and rather focused on creating space between you know, stimulus and response in order to transcend what is likely fear that was causing a lot of my emotional responses to difficult things.
0: Candice, you and know, I share a very similar philosophy because I personally think we are losing the middle ground the herds are moving to the edges where we find like-minded people and like-minded content or confirmation bias to say, oh, they agree with me. And we lose our empathy and our, lose our ability to, to be rational. You're kind of doing it as an individual. I also think as a society, we have to spend more time understanding each other's perspectives because I think what has advanced the human race and this concept of life learning that you're involved with as well as the sense of different points of view can often add up to a better point of view. The next thing you talk about is, it's not enough to have intention. You have to own your impact.
2: I've always had good intentions, right? I think most of us have good intentions, but intentions aren't enough. And a great example for that is what's happened with technology. Um, If you look at the early days of Facebook, you know, it was uh, this amazing intention of connecting the world and, and making the world smaller and a better place. It turns out that there's some really difficult things and, and less desirable things that social media have done. and I was really aware, as you know we were sort of seeing what fake news and what some of the, the unintended consequences of these like complex systems were doing, that most leadership was focused on just sticking to what their intention was, and yet. The impact is what actually mattered. You know, in a society that is complex, it's not enough to just own intentions. We have to own our impact and take responsibility for the impact that we are making on our planet, on our employees, on our customers, on society. And unfortunately, there's different reward systems for doing so. It's not always aligned.
0: You know, I started doing campus tours years ago, pro bono, just because I wanted to give back to the schools. And it's interesting that over the time I did it, but I, I get asked the same question. And regardless of what you pursued, I gave the same answer. Three kinds of rewards in life. Intellectual, am I being stimulated? Am I learning? Emotional, do I feel like I belong? Can I contribute? Do I value the values and impact the company has? And financial, am I getting paid well? My advice is always intellectual and emotional. And if you find where you're stimulating, you're passionate, and you have purpose, money will follow. Career advancement will follow. The path in life you want, you'll be able to follow. I sense nowadays that a lot of people in the entrepreneurial space are first and foremost saying, I want to be the next dot-com billionaire.
2: I'm really bullish on young people. I think the comment is more that the Institutional roles that sort of maybe you and I grew up with that were the career paths of the past are no longer the same. It is a really, really great path for young people. And I don't see entrepreneurship as necessarily starting your own business. I think there are entrepreneurial companies and cultures, and then there are more institutional or industrial age type professions or company cultures. And I think what young people should be immersing themselves in is the cultures and environments that are adaptable, resilient, and thrive in chaos and change because you're going to learn different skills. I also think a lot more young people are choosing to become creators, which is slightly different than entrepreneurs. People aren't waiting to be given permission. To create content or to share their voice or to find community, they're recognizing that is an incredibly important part of actually building your resume or your brand or uh, relationships for you to add value to society by actually sharing what you know and becoming a part of this creator economy.
0: What's next for someone who's done so much and offering such a positive impact to the planet?
2: I am all disco right now. I feel so incredibly privileged to be building a platform that helps so many people both learn amazing things because we are enabling creators to to build live learning experiences. And we're in the early innings. Like We started this company a year ago. My co-founder is Chris Sikornick. And we just have an incredible vision to help reimagine what the future of education is going to look like and to really give creators the the tools to actually monetize their purpose and passion through teaching live together. Outside of that, I just want to be a positive and reflective voice for people to actually realize that so much of what's standing between you and pursuing your purpose and passion is you, you know, and just small micro habits and changes in your mindset and mental models can lead to unbelievable things. I'm living proof of that. I absolutely had imposter syndrome and I Absolutely, put a lot of barriers uh, between me pursuing something I was passionate about and felt was purposeful. So much of it was fear, and so much of it was, you know, just learning to unlearn as opposed to uh, having to know all the answers. So
0: I'm chatting with Candice Factor, and as you know, I always end with the three things I've learned, and this one's tough because I feel like I've been drinking through a fire hose. Candice, the first thing I'd say is the core you play to the entire interview is about learning. You have such a passion and people can't see you because it's a podcast, but I even said the word just now and the biggest smile came up and learning to you is this gift that you're giving people to help them get to where they want to go. And I love the fact that you talked about this platform we're creating is for the misfits. It's for the people that are willing to abandon status quo. And the second thing I learned is that when you talk about small steps, micro habits, this this isn't daunting. You don't have to go from ground zero to climbing Mount Everest, that you can do it one step at a time. And then the final thing I think is just really understanding impact and really going beyond short-term goals and really having a sense of that legacy in life, whether you're an organization or a startup or an individual, will ultimately be the impact, the positive impact that you leave on this planet. Candice Factor, it's been an absolute delight. It's been wonderful to have you on Chatter That Matters.
2: Tony, you are an inspiration. You know, what I built with Game Changer, I look at what you've done with Chatter That Matters and I just see, you know, so much possibility. And so I'm so grateful to be here. I hope you join Disco too. I think you'd make for an amazing uh, teacher and just keep doing the amazing work you're doing. Uh, This certainly is Chatter That Matters and uh, I'm super grateful to have been on your show.
0: Joining me now is Sheila McGrogan. If you heard an episode a couple of weeks ago, I brought her on because as Bill Gates says, content is king. Well, this is the queen of content when it comes to RBC. In an earlier episode, you talked about, you know, the people getting a mortgage, they're buying a house, they're, they're creating a nest. But very often someone's adventure requires more than one piece of content. The future it's going to be about continuous learning. What advice can you give to the listeners in terms of creating content that's more educationally slanted versus marketing or sales slanted?
1: You know, I think there's always going to be a place for the hard-hitting offer, but I think it's imperative now more than ever as consumers are inundated with marketing messaging that we take the time to really make the connection with our consumer and we connect through the heart, creating connections with our clients to help them get to where they need and want to go.
0: Sheila, I recently read about RBC teaming up with McGill to create this online financial literacy course. And I'm curious, why did you step in and shoulder that yourself and create your own course? Why did you work with the university?
1: We teamed up with McGill University to offer the McGill Personal Finance Essential course. It's a free online course available to all Canadians. And financial literacy is one of the most important topics we'll ever need to master, but it's complicated and financial services can be an intimidating category. You know, if the course had come from us, the bank, um, people would assume we're trying to sell them a credit card or something. So we teamed up with McGill, who are experts in the field of education. And whether it's one of our clients taking the course or someone who banks elsewhere, it's open and available to everyone as we believe this is a really important topic for Canadians.
0: So if any of my listeners wanna take this course, where will we find it?
1: McGillPersonalFinance.com and they can simply sign up and register right there and jump right into the course. And it takes the participant through a variety of topics uh, pertaining to financial literacy.
0: It's Tony Chapman, let's chat soon.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.